Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with the mandate of demystifying science for you guys. And uh, there's a lot of science that needs to be demystified because there's so much confusion out there today. Uh, we're told to eat butter, then don't eat butter, eat margarine, don't eat margarine, eat fish, don't eat fish, you got mercury, etc. A lot of confusing information out there. And uh, that is especially the case these days with the COVID-19 crisis that we are, are facing. Uh, we are uh, informed and misinformed roughly at the same rate. There's a lot of good stuff that comes at us that, that we know is reliable uh, from trusted authorities, but the uh, pseudoscience people are also out there applying their trade and uh, confusing people with uh, supposed benefits of drugs like uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and dietary supplements. Uh, uh, none of that is uh, evidence-based. Uh, so it is indeed confusing times in which we live. I'm going to have a guest uh, just after the 3.15 break today, uh, Dr. Uh, Shaw, who was a former student of mine. And uh, I always like to, you know, keep in touch with uh, uh, former students, especially ones that have made uh, good. And uh, we'll talk about her career, and she is now an infectious disease specialist. So we will talk about uh, just what is going on in her world. That's coming up after the 315 uh, break. Uh, for the moment, let me talk a little bit about roses. Yeah, it's, it's kind of time to wake up and smell the roses. Why? Because we live in uh, very disturbing times, right? We're disturbed politically, we're disturbed sociologically, we're uh, disturbed by all of the, the uh, illness and death that is going around us. Uh, so it would be good to have something that is positive out there. <laughs> And uh, roses may provide something along those lines because they certainly have a pleasant appearance and they, they are very pretty to, to look at. But there's also some very interesting uh, history. There's a classic victory celebration at the end of uh, every Grand Prix Formula One race. And those of you who have been at Grand Prix in Montreal will have seen this, or on TV, of course, because this is the classic ending to every race. The first three finishers climb up on the podium. The winner is given this large magnum of champagne, uh, shakes it up, pops the corn, the cork, and starts squirting the stuff all over the place, drenching everyone, getting into people's eyes. Everyone seems to be happy uh, because champagne is the beverage of celebration. Uh, of course, we see it in sports too. After every Stanley Cup, every World Series, every NFL championship, every NBA championship, the champagne flows freely. Well, except when the Grand Prix Formula One race is held in Bahrain or in Abu Dhabi. Why? Because in these countries, the public consumption of alcohol is uh, frowned upon. And in keeping with local culture and tradition, the fizzy beverage is replaced with uh, a drink, a local drink, with a base of rose water. 
And uh, rose water apparently also has a special place in the Muslim culture, uh, with the rose sometimes being referred to as the flower of Prophet Muhammad because of its pleasant aroma. It is said to conjure up reminders of, of the good deeds that the Prophet did. Well, roses historically have always held a very special place among flowers. Why? Because, of course, they are associated with uh, romance and with love. Valentine's Day, of course, is a classic day when people buy roses and, and uh, give them to their loved ones. also happens on, on Mother's Day or for no special occasion. Just bringing home uh, flowers will make people happy. In Greek mythology, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, fell in love with a mortal. That mortal was Adonis, a shepherd. And uh, one day he was gored by a wild boar. And uh, Aphrodite came to rescue her lover. But as she rushed towards him, her skin was pierced with the thorns of a wild rose. And when her tears and her blood mixed together and dripped on this rose bush, it thenceforth started to produce the red roses that came to symbolize love and passion. And there's a long history of such symbolism. Cleopatra is said to have covered her boudoir with rose petals when she was waiting for Mark Antony to come. And guests at Roman orgies supposedly had their passions inflamed with the scent of rose water in the air. Well, what is rose water? The simplest form of rose water is produced by steeping rose petals in water. And that certainly smells like roses, but it doesn't have exactly the same bouquet as the freshly picked flowers. Rose fragrance is a complex mixture of dozens and dozens of compounds, some of which are water-soluble, some are not. For example, geranial, which is a major component of rose aroma, is water-soluble. But beta-damascenone, another important contributor, is not. A much more fragrant rose water became available with the introduction of the alembic. And that's a basic distillation apparatus generally attributed to the Islamic alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan in the 9th century. Most of you have seen an alembic, although you probably don't know what it was called, because it is really the symbol of alchemy, and uh, it became one of the first symbols of chemistry as well. It's a rounded flask with a long neck, and uh, a substance can be placed in the flask. You can heat the flask then from below, and the vapors form, and then they travel up the flask and through this long downward neck. And because that is surrounded by cooler air, the vapors that arise are condensed back to a liquid that then can be collected and it drips out from the end of this long neck. And if you do this very carefully, you can even separate the components of the vapors by virtue of their boiling point because very volatile ones will come over more quickly. The heavier ones will take a longer time to uh, come over. If you take some water and put that into the alembic, as besides rose petals, for example, the steam that forms 
helps to vaporize the volatile components. This is a, a procedure we call steam distillation. And the products of this is an essential oil that sits on top of an aqueous layer, which is called the hydrosol, and that contains the water-soluble components. And that hydrosol, that is the lower layer, is what is generally referred to as rose water. The oil that sits on top of it, which has also distilled over, is known as the attar of roses. And that is used in perfumery, while rose water is used to flavor beverages or add some flavor to sweets such as marzipan and Turkish delight. Uh, so rose attar is very expensive because it takes a lot of roses. It takes about 2,000 flowers to produce one gram of this, this oil. And uh, sometimes there's adulteration. Uh, geraniums contain uh, geraniol as well. And the oil of geranium, geranium is uh, much cheaper. Now, that adulteration doesn't have any practical consequences. There's no safety hazard here. It's just unethical to call it pure essence of roses uh, when what you're really getting is, is, is really a mixture. So rose water is interesting, and there are some health applications with that as well. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, sometime later. Uh, but we're going to take a break now, check out traffic. And after that, we'll be back with uh, Dr. Lauren Shaw. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. One of the great pleasures of teaching, which I have been doing now for some 45, six years, is that you get to meet a lot of wonderful students, very interesting people, very talented people. And uh, over the years, I've had some 40,000 students. And uh, sometimes it is uh, kind of neat to keep in touch with some. And I have managed to keep in touch with uh, a fair number over the years, especially the ones who have uh, kind of made good and have forged careers for themselves. And I like to chat with them uh, once in a while and uh, rekindle some uh, memories and see where they have ended up. Today's guest is Dr. Lauren Lapointe Shaw. And uh, Lauren was uh, an undergraduate student when she worked for me at McGill, writing pieces for our website. And some of those are still there on our, <laughs> on our website. And uh, she has since gone on to get a medical degree and also a PhD. She is right now with the University of Toronto. She lives in Toronto. And I thought it would be really neat to catch up with her, especially because she works in the area of infectious disease, obviously the hottest topic today. So Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. I really have been looking forward to this. Um, it's just wonderful to reconnect with you after all these years. Yes, and it has been a few years, hasn't it? So when, uh, what year did you graduate as an undergrad from McGill? 2005. 2005, and then you went on and you did uh, medical school at McGill? Yes, that's right. So that was until 2009, then went to Toronto for uh, internal medicine residency, and then after that did uh, a PhD also in Toronto in clinical epidemiology, and, uh, and I have actually recently come on as a faculty uh, in the last year in Toronto. And also had two kids during this time and got married. So many things have happened. Boy, how old are the kids? Five and three. Wow, that keeps you busy. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, uh, tell me what what is your practice uh, like today? What do you do on a daily basis? Yeah, so I'm a general internist physician. So I take care of patients who are admitted to hospital, um, and so that's like adults typically with non-surgical problems. For example, people admitted with pneumonia, and people admitted with COVID nineteen. So. Um, I actually was on service a few times taking care of patients admitted to our COVID-19 uh, service at University Health Network. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that was sort of very uh, eye-opening um, from the perspective of everything that's been going on. But then also on, for my own research. So I'm a clinician scientist, which means that 75% of my time is actually dedicated to research and only 25% is actually clinical practice. Uh, and the research that I do uh, is centered on health services, measuring the quality of care, improving access to care, preventing hospital readmission. And recently, now COVID-19 and specifically syndromic surveillance for COVID-19. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, of course, it's an explosive field of research now. And there's just new updates every day. And uh, it's been a very interesting ride, and I continue to try to um, help further general understanding of COVID-19 as well with various sort of outreach in the media and this interview, of course. And I think that's something that I really learned from you as well, Joe, because, you know, the whole role of the OSS, the, uh, now I'm, the Office for Science and Society at McGill, um, was very focused on uh, communicating science to the public and debunking myths. So I think that's something that I've continued on with uh, throughout my career thus far. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Laura. And let's get back for a moment to, to your experience with the COVID-19 patients in, in, in the hospital. And uh, how treatments that you have used have changed from the very first days when basically nobody knew anything except that these patients, you know, started to show up with respiratory problems. And then, of course, uh, we learned that there were more complications, you know, coagulation complications, kidney complications, etc. And slowly uh, things started to change. So what, what have you noticed in terms of, of treatment from what you were first doing with the first patients who presented uh, in comparison to the ones who are presenting today? So early on, I actually was involved in developing our own um, treatment protocol at our hospital. And uh, as you said, treatment was very supportive. So focused on um, intensive monitoring, providing uh, intravenous fluids when needed, medications to control symptoms, and then the key thing being watching those oxygen saturations to see when somebody might end up needing ICU care or, or to be put on a ventilator for life support. Um, over time, there was initially that the study of remdesivir that suggested that there was shorter recovery times. And then we saw uh, probably the best evidence yet was for dexamethasone in terms of reducing mortality. Um, and so dexamethasone has been adopted into the standard of practice. Um, I actually haven't been on the COVID-19 service uh, recently, so I haven't uh, worked with patients since that became the new standard of care. But it is great to know that now we have some more tools that we can use to improve patients' outcomes. And certainly, we use dexamethasone quite broadly for 
any number of conditions. So um, I think, you know, we, it, it makes intuitive sense that that potentially could have helped in a very inflammatory condition. And I'm glad also that it's a broadly available medication and it isn't one single pharma company um, that could have potentially restricted the supply. So this is all great news. I'm sure that your hospital, as, as our McGill Teaching Hospitals, at one time played around with hydroxychloroquine because there was so much publicity about it. Uh, did you ever see any kind of positive results with it? So interestingly, we actually, so at our center, we did not play around with the hydroxychloroquine because very early on, um, the infectious disease experts throughout the Toronto uh, academic hospitals uh, came up with a standard of practice that actually very explicitly stated these drugs should not be used outside of a clinical trial setting. And so, in fact, we didn't end up using any hydroxychloroquine because you know, it would have had to be in the context of a trial. And uh, by the time our trials were up and running, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, by the trials, by the time the trials were up and running at my hospital, there were very few COVID patients left, um, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, speaks to the incredible delays in getting trials up and running, which is an ongoing problem. Did you ever have any shortage of uh, protective equipment? Yes, definitely. Like all the hospitals, I believe, in Ontario and in Canada, especially in the early days, there were shortages, particularly of masks. And, you know, that's when we moved to wearing a mask continuously all day, which actually ended up being um, the right move, but for other reasons. So it was made, it was a decision made based on conservation of masks, but actually having people wear masks all the time, now that we understand more and more about uh, the importance of the relative roots of COVID transmission, um, transmission through droplets and even air in some cases is um, much more important, it seems, than surface transmission. And so having masks all the time really did a lot to limit transmission across healthcare providers. So that was uh, lucky in a way. And, uh, and and now, actually, we have abundant masks. So fortunately, it seems uh, various companies have really ramped up their production. Um, we did have at times um, uh, issues with not having enough face shields where we had to keep the same face shield all day. Um, that has also now resolved. And at one point, we even had shortages of sanitizing wipes. Um, so, you know, there's been endless changes in the suppliers of the sanitizing wipes to try to keep up with. Uh, right. Okay, Lauren, hang needs. on for a few minutes because we've got to take a break here, check the news. And then I'd okay. like to chat with you some more about your PhD and the research that you're doing. Sounds good. Okay. I'm chatting with Dr. Lauren Lapointe-Shaw, former student of mine, but right now she's uh, in Toronto, University of Toronto, uh, on staff there, and she practices and she also does research and we'll chat about her research when we come back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Lapointe-Shaw, an internist at University of Toronto. She also does research and she was a former student of mine and a McGill grad. So Lauren, um, your research... What does it focus on? Yes. Yeah, so um, prior, I, I'm guessing you want to talk mostly about the COVID-19 research. Is that right? 
Uh, well, let's start with that, but also about the readmission to hospital. That's an interesting story, oh, yeah. too. But let's yeah, start with so, the... Go ahead with the COVID first, maybe. Okay, yeah. So the COVID-19 work um, relates to what's called syndromic surveillance. So this is uh, a public health tool that complements traditional sources of public health data. So that's like your case counts and the number of tests you do and what number come back positive with additional information that tells you about what proportion of people in the population are actually experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. And there's a number of tools out there where people self-report their symptoms, um, including some through uh, governmental agencies. Uh, And the goal with this data is to get a more complete picture of what's happening with COVID-19, but also to get a bit of an advanced warning, because we know that people... First of all, many people who get COVID-19 are going to be minimally sick, some of them completely asymptomatic. Um, And those who have minimal symptoms may not necessarily seek out testing. Uh, That's less true now than it was early on in the pandemic. Now I would hope that messaging has been, um, you know, very powerful driver of seeking out testing. Secondly, we know that even if people were to seek out testing, they will probably get tested many days until they're into their illness. And then when they actually get a test, there's also a lag in terms of the turnaround to the test results and that translating to a case that appears in public health data. Um, Contrast that with if I'm feeling sick today, say I have a new cough or shortness of breath, I can actually self-report through any number of various these apps um, and websites, and then I'm sort of counted as a symptomatic person on any given day in a region. And so if you look at trends in the proportion of people reporting um, COVID-19-like symptoms over time, you could actually get a bit of lead time as far as seeing a rise in case numbers. Um, So that's why it's exciting, and I'm doing work uh, looking at uh, data from COVID Near You, which is something that was uh, created by a team out of um, Boston Children's and Harvard, uh, but now also collects data in Canada. And uh, it's been very interesting, certainly branching out from my usual research, which is related to uh, more classical health services research, and that is measuring quality of care, looking at patients' outcomes, looking at the effects of health policy changes, um, mostly in Ontario. And what, uh, what have you learned from the COVID research? So with the COVID research, we have learned that, in fact, the symptomatic uh, trends do track nicely with the case numbers. Um, we're trying to work out exactly, you know, how much of an advanced notice you can potentially get. Uh, we also note that we catch different groups of the population, depending on whether we're looking at symptom self-reporting versus case numbers. So people who tend to self-report are predominantly middle-aged, whereas people who get tested, at least early on, were very much uh, the older population was more likely to get tested because they were more likely to also present to care with complications. So people are developing different symptomatic algorithms uh, because you're always trading off false positives against false negatives, or what we call sensitivity and specificity, which are related concepts, um, to find the best performing definition uh, to determine what's happening with COVID-19 in your region. 
Now, what do you see happening? What what do you think the direction is going to be? And do you see any kind of, of uh, solution in, in the relatively near future? Yeah, so it does seem inevitable that cases will rise once schools reopen. It's just a, a question of when um, and how fast. So I think it's becoming more clear now that, you know, kids do in fact and can transmit COVID-19. Um, how well we're able to continue to contain COVID-19 after schools reopen really will depend on how successfully we can implement the needed measures in school settings. And uh, we know that that is a very tricky issue. So um, distancing, sometimes even upgrading ventilation systems, getting young children to wear masks, all these things are troublesome. And so for all those reasons, I, I think many people anticipate there will be a second wave. Uh, but what we do know is that now we've had time to make significant gains as far as the degree of preparation and developing systems for testing, contact tracing, and even supporting people in their self-isolation. That's sort of the next frontier as far as helping to contain, uh, contain the virus. We know that in large families or, or, or multi-individual um, multi or group dwellings, that, that poses a significant uh, uh, that creates a reservoir for the virus as a virus sort of travels through various family members within one dwelling. And so having the option for um, hotels or other uh, other settings where people can self-isolate with, with financial support from the state can go uh, a long way to help to reduce that reservoir of COVID-19. So these are all kind of, it's a multi-pronged approach. And I think everybody there's a growing appreciation for how complex this is and how we really can't let up any part of this approach, especially now as schools are reopening and uh, remain vigilant and then respond to see what happens. Right. So um, I, right now cases are rising in BC and, you know, there's very strong public health leadership in BC. Um, at this point, they're sort of taking a wait and see approach, which makes sense because, if you know that you're going to have lots of little waves and wavelets and up and down, you may want to, you know, wait a little bit to see what's happening and, and if it's actually the time to to uh, go back towards lockdown or, or not a full lockdown, but to go back towards more restrictive public health measures. Right, Lauren, one question time. that I really like to ask uh, people who have expertise in a specific area is... <coughs> What, what changes they have made in their own life based upon their <laughs> professional uh, situation? You know, what, what, what you've learned having gone through, you know, all, a medical career and, and now with expertise in infectious diseases. What, are, what have you changed in your own life and what are you doing? Do you wipe, for example, do you wipe your groceries when you get home? Uh, do you ever invite people into your house? Do you go to other people's houses? Do you go to restaurants? I mean, these are questions that, you know, people ask themselves. And it's always interesting to see what people who are sort of really in the know <laughs> do about this. But we've got to take right. another little break here. So I'm going to give you a chance to think about that. Okay. About and cough a little bit. Perfect. What, <laughs> what changes you have made in your life and what you, 
uh, you know, what you plan on doing in the future. And uh, we'll come back and uh, chat a little bit uh, more about that. My guest today is Dr. Lauren Lapointe Shaw, who's a a McGill graduate. Uh, She worked for me as an undergrad and then went on to do a medical degree and PhD and is now on staff at University of Toronto. And she does uh, research there on COVID-19. And she's also an internist, so she sees patients with COVID-19. And we'll uh, ask her about uh, what her experience has uh, led her to do in her daily life, if there have been any changes. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Dr. Lauren LaPointe-Shaw is an internist in Toronto. She also does research in COVID-19, treats patients with the disease, and she was a former student of mine. And we're chatting about uh, what uh, possible changes uh, she's made in her life after confronting uh, COVID-19. So, Lauren, I mean, we're living in a new world. Nothing is the same as it was, and even the future isn't what it used to be, right? So what what have you done? How has this affected your everyday life? So I think like many, uh, you know, what haven't I done? I think my life changed dramatically like many people. Um, Before the break, you asked me about a few things, um, and I'll sort of try to unpack them. So when when the pandemic was first declared, I was quite glued to the news, actually, and I had sort of um, already stopped going to work even before the work other colleagues stopped coming in. Uh, I was happy to sort of live at home for quite some time, but it's quite challenging with kids at home, like for many, to get any work done. That's been difficult. Uh, It was nice that, you know, as weather got warmer, then um, I actually started biking in to work, which you know, I didn't do prior to COVID-19. I took public transit. And now I'm wondering why I didn't do it all these years, because actually biking is quite wonderful. So I, and I've heard there's been a rebirth of biking. So I'm probably not alone in this discovery. Um, You know, we, we don't really see anyone other than our immediate family. Fortunately, we have a backyard. So there's been a lot of outdoor time, a lot of um, unscheduled, unstructured time for the kids, which in some ways has its benefits, right? Kids tend to be heavily scheduled otherwise. So now uh, people have described this summer as like kind of a 1970s style summer. So that um, has some positive. You asked about um, decontaminating your groceries and all that. Um, early on, I was quite concerned about that. And yes, I, I have Lysol wiped groceries uh, on occasion. Uh, But then as there was more emerging evidence that surface contamination was much less of a uh, route of transmission than initially thought, and that pretty much the bulk of the transmission events we were seeing were related to either droplet or airborne, but I'll just group them together as sort of air transmission. Um, So since that happened, I've stopped obsessively decontaminating the things that come into my house. Still sanitize, of course. Um, for instance, you know, if I get groceries, obviously we're wearing a mask in the grocery store and then get into the car and then sanitize immediately. Uh, but not not this obsession with cleaning the surfaces. Um, one discussion recently on Twitter related to what I like to term the high-risk three, so restaurants, bars, and gyms. Um, I was a, quite a gym fan before, so it is... It is uh, you know, I deep in my heart, I do want to go to the gym, but I, I'm not going to just because 
the idea that there's so many people huffing and puffing and spreading their droplets um, and potentially taking off their mask uh, is not appealing to me. So I think the risks outweigh the benefits at this stage, despite them being reopened. Restaurants, uh, eating outside, of course, I think is fantastic. Indoors, I have a bit more trepidation. It really depends on how successfully people distance. So I have not actually gone to any restaurants. And, you know, bars, like those days, those days are pretty much gone for me anyways. Uh, but I wouldn't be going, uh, I sort of lumped that, I guess, with indoor restaurants, sort of higher risk. Do the kids go to daycare? Or? So the kids have been home all summer, um, but they will be going to school. So sort of acknowledging the risk of that. And also uh, my, my basic plan is to keep my eye on the numbers. And at some point, I mean, I can't really say what that point is, but if it looks like things are going sideways quickly, then we may keep them home again at that point. But uh, our plan will be for them to go back then. Are there grandparents in the picture? Grandparents are in the picture, but they're not in the city. Um, and it's true that now going back to school requires a little bit of a re rethink as far as the bubble. So uh, because we weren't seeing anyone else, we did see grandparents uh, over the summer. But now if we're going to be like presumably in a bit of a bubble with all these, you know, however many kids at school, then we're more concerned for the grandparents. So we're rethinking that now. It also will depend on what's happening with um, with the epidemiology locally. And uh, if, if sort of prevalence is rising and the kids are in school, then we probably will at some point stop seeing the grandparents. And Lauren, what do you see in the long run? What, what's, your, what's your prediction? What, what, what's going to happen? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I am hopeful that there will be a vaccine Um in the next year, uh, I think that's the sort of optimistic projection at this point would be vaccine in like spring 2021, but uh, it could definitely be longer than that. Um, it's I think up until we get to the vaccine, there's certainly going to be these sort of wavelets of up and down and up and down. And even after getting a vaccine, because as many people have said, you know, there isn't really infrastructure to mass distribute immediately to the entire globe a vaccine, there will be quite a long transition phase even once a vaccine becomes available before, you know, most people actually have immunity. So we're going to be in this for quite some time. Um, and I think we are getting growing recognition of the mental health effects of this sort of constant state of, of fear and, 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 uh, and isolation, um, and so that's something from a from you know my role as a physician healthcare worker, we're increasingly aware of that there's going to be various fallout effects, um, not just for mental health, but also for example for cancer screening, which has been delayed, surgeries that are deemed elective, but at some point you know something that is elective may become urgent. So you know we're we're sort of thinking how are we going to cope with this over the next uh, few years. But um, I think overall we're in better shape than we were in the spring, and hopefully we can keep things at a sort of slow burn rate. So that we well, certainly the numbers that are presenting each day are going down. 
so that's that's right. a positive thing. But uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm not very optimistic about the vaccine business. I, I no. think that it's going to take longer than people think, and also I'm very concerned about the anti-vaxxers. And uh, you yeah. know, when you see statistics that 20 to 30 percent of the population are going to refuse to uh, subject themselves to the vaccine no matter what, uh, that's that's a scary uh, kind of a situation. So yeah, I'm not that yeah. hopeful for the for the vaccine, but uh, I think the the physical distancing is working. I think the universal masking is working. I think that's the reason that we are seeing the decline in, uh, in daily cases, and we just have to to keep at it. And uh, uh, unfortunately, there's also going to be COVID fatigue. You know, where a lot of people are are just going to say, well, you know, uh, I can't live like that. Uh, so we have to guard against that. Uh, another concern that I have is is that uh, people who are working at home are going to develop a new kind of homesickness, <laughs> sick of being at home, and uh, mm -hmm. you know are are going to go out and take uh, chances that that probably are not uh, appropriate. So anyway, Lauren, it's it's very nice to <laughs> hear from you and see that you have done so well and that uh, you're doing interesting research and you're helping patients and that you have successfully reproduced. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> all, all of that is, is very nice to hear. It's, it's, uh, it's always a great pleasure to chat with uh, former students who have uh, uh, forged careers as, as you have. Thanks so, thank so much, Joe. Th thanks a lot for uh, being here and, and chatting. And uh, all the best. And uh, I hope that uh, my pessimism about the uh, vaccine turns out to be. And, Fingers uh, crossed. Yeah. So well, we shall see. Anyway, thanks a lot, Lauren, and all the best for the future. Thank you. Take care, Joe. Okay. So that's it. We have a smack run out of time. But we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life is just right.